President, friends and fellow citizens, he who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has strong, stronger nerves than I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared as a speaker before an assembly more shrinkingly, nor with greater distrust of my ability than I do this day. A feeling has crept over me quite unfavorably to the exercise of my limited powers of speech. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and the natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God both for your sake and ours that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the state of the case. I see it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not 
enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and his crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty in which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and quality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bomb blast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despises of the old world. Travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. <laughs> Good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I greet you in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby men shall be saved. And this is the day that the Lord has made. We're rejoicing 
and we are glad in it. I pray that you are having a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I can't tell you where I am just yet because we're introducing now a new series of sermons to you entitled Backdrops, and it'll all make sense as we go throughout the service. But until we reveal where we actually are, why don't we just worship the Lord right now in spirit and in truth. Open your heart, open your mouth, open your mind, and let's worship the Lord together. Thank you. 
The scripture for today is coming from 2 Peter, first chapter, verses 20 and 21, King James Version. The scripture is as reads, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we first come to you on this 4th of July weekend, often referred to as Independence Weekend, to thank you for your darling son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, Father, in these times, I ask that you hear the cries of your trodden down children in this country. Even as some refuse to listen and harden their hearts to your black and brown children, crying out for reprieve from the bounds of oppression by a system that leaves no room for love, compassion, justice, or humanity, Father, we are reaching out to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ to stand with those of us who have been enslaved, segregated, Jim Crowed, oppressed, and forced to watch as black lives are taken or denied the basic inalienable rights granted to any other that calls themselves American citizens. But though, but through it all, we that know you, Father, thank you for that our faith is not in man or his laws, but in you. So this very day, we pray for the soul of America, that it may not be judged as Sodom and Gomorrah, but as a faithful nation that turned away from its wicked ways. Now we ask through, the, through your messenger, the hearts of all under the sound of his voice will be healed and moved to spread your truth to a dying world. Use him that your people hear a word from you right now, Master. And when your word goes out, let every knee bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord, in whom we find joy, peace, and refuge. Through the cleansing and sacrificial blood of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. The psalmist declares, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Certainly God has blessed our nation. He has prospered us immensely. We're not perfect, but we are prosperous. And because of that, we should bless others as God has so prospered us. This is our offering period, and you can give in any number of ways that have been made possible. You can give by texting the number that's on your screen, or you can give through the K-Chapel app. As always, you can mail your offering or drop it off at the office. However you give, Make sure you do so liberally, regularly, but most important, do it cheerfully. For God still loves a cheerful giver. Oh.
speak to my heart, Lord. Give me your holy word. If I can't hear from you, then I know what to do. I won't go alone. I never go on my own. Just let your spirit guide and let your word abide. Another political arising 
What we need is a special word that will burn within our hearts and give us direction from above. Just one word from your Lord that removes all the doubt and cause the sun to shine and give peace of mind. Speak, Lord. Speak. This morning, we begin a new series of sermons entitled Backdrops. The goal of this series is to take a look at some of the most misused, mis 
interpreted and sometimes misquoted passages of the Bible and put them in their proper context. Why? Because the context or the backdrop of the passage actually matters. It matters the time of the writing, the audience of the writing, the situation that surrounds the writing. If you do away with those things and you take away the backdrop of the text, you can then make it look how you want it to look, sound how you want it to sound, say what you want it to say, and do what you want it to do. And we've seen examples of this throughout history where the Bible has been used or misused so that a certain message or idea or doctrine would seem to have scriptural authority. Now, to be fair, sometimes it is an unintentional misinterpretation of the text, but other times it is a gross manipulation of the text, which oftentimes results in the abuse or the oppression of a people. Unfortunately, we've seen the intentional misuse and manipulation of the Bible play out around the world and even right here in America. I'll give you three different examples. First, example one is manipulation of the text. I'm holding a book entitled The Slave Bible. It was originally published in 1807. The Slave Bible was used by whites to teach slaves that their enslavement was not only a part of God's plan, but that God expected them to be obedient and non-rebellious. In order to ensure that slaves did not get the idea of rebelling, much of the Old Testament is missing. Why? Because the Old Testament tells the story of an enslaved people who are freed by God, a captive people who are liberated by God, a people who have been made to sing their songs in a strange land and how God eventually defeats their captors. And so in the slave Bible, the story of Moses, Pharaoh, and the children of Israel, that's missing. In the slave Bible, the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, they're missing. In fact, about 90% of the Old Testament is missing and 50% of the New Testament is missing. Put that another way, there are 1,189 chapters in the standard Protestant Bible. But in this book called the Slave Bible, there are only 232 chapters. And the reason is clear in the title of the book itself, parts of the Holy Bible for the use of the Negro slaves of the British West Indian Islands. This is an intentional manipulation of the Bible to oppress black people in the Western world. Example number two, misinterpretation of the text. Just a few years ago, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions was giving a press conference concerning the separation of families at the Mexican border. These families were attempting to escape Mexico seeking asylum in the United States. In defense of that zero tolerance immigration policy that enforced the separation of children from their parents as a way to dissuade asylum seekers, Sessions cited Romans 13, where Paul talks about submitting to governing authorities. In essence, his message was, whatever we, the government, determine as policy, people should then follow it, regardless of how inhumane or unethical or immoral it is. If it's of the government, then we, the citizens, or in this case, the asylum seekers, have the scriptural commandment to submit to it. Now that is not just a misinterpretation, that is a misuse of the Bible, which helped to support the separation of families.
Here's the third example, misuse of the text. But let me give you a bit more of a recent example that serves a different type of purpose. On Monday, June 1st of this year, President Trump took a photo in front of the St. John's Church while holding a Bible up in his right hand. Left out of the picture, however, were the peaceful protesters who were dispersed with tear gas, flash grenades, and rubber bullets minutes before the photo was taken. The still imagery captured was later described by Bishop Buddy, the bishop of that church, as a, quote, prop, and the church building as merely a, quote, backdrop to further a cause that neither represents the heart nor the words of Christ. In essence, the Bible and the building were being co-opted tools to send a message to rally support for how the riots and demonstrations were being handled by the federal government. And unfortunately, we can point to how scripture, the Bible, and even the church have historically been co-opted to provide support for everything from the German Holocaust to American slavery. That's why it's so important that when we approach scripture, we are doing so with the right lenses, the right motivations, the right heart, and the right spirit. So, why are we here at the War Memorial? Let, let me be clear before we go any further. Our reason for being here in this setting is not to offer some blistering critique on America. We, we are America-loving people. We too sing America. Black people have fought in every American battle that has been fought for ideals and principles and freedoms that were not always even extended to us. And yet we have built our homes here. We've raised our families here. We've built a national economy here. And this is our home. We love this land and the freedoms that it affords. Though not always perfect, certainly not always equal, as Senator David Jordan of Greenwood recently said, our tears have watered and our bones have fertilized the soil of this land. So the intent of this series in general, and this sermon in particular, is to see how place, how setting, how backdrops can shape and shade our view and our vision. To realize that context matters. So let me show you what I mean. I want you to watch this clip. It's a minute and 40 seconds roughly. After you watch it, I'll be right back. And I contend that the cry of black power is at bottom a reaction to the reluctance of white power to make the kind of changes necessary to make justice a reality for the Negro. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer we are going to have this kind of vigorous feeding and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. And 
I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America to a large extent. This is where we are at this point, and I think white America will determine how long it will be and which way we go in the future. So here's the question. Where was that clip filmed? If you say that it was shot in D.C., then you're only half right. You see, the first 60 seconds were in D.C., but the last 45, they were right here in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, outside and inside of this very building. Because you first saw monuments and buildings that you recognized, when you saw others that you didn't recognize, the assumption was that they must be in D.C. too. In other words, you had been preconditioned by the first set of pictures to see something that wasn't true for the entirety of the clip. And it's the same way with reading the Bible. Oftentimes, we come to it having been preconditioned. Our experiences precondition us. Our exposure preconditions us. Our education preconditions us. Our cultural contexts precondition us before we ever come to and interact with the text. Not only do our experiences, our exposure, our education, and our cultural context precondition us, but our previous reading of the text preconditions us. Our previous understandings precondition us. What we've been taught about the text preconditions us when we approach that text again. And, and that can be dangerous if those understandings have been the product of misinterpretations, mis appropriations, or even manipulations of the scripture. Now, I should go ahead and get on the record for saying that much of what we have been taught about the Bible and the scriptures come from a perspective and a cultural context that is different from the context in which those scriptures have been written. Dr. Jerome Ross, professor of Hebrew Bible at the School of Theology at Virginia Union reminds us that most of the Bible was written under one of six different kinds of oppression. There is the oppression that comes from the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. Why is that important to remember? Because that gives us the right precondition for approaching the text. The scriptures have not been written from the backdrop of power, but rather from the backdrop of oppression, which means that the view or the angle by which the writers explore their understanding of God or their theology is not from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. They are writing about God from a vantage point of the oppressed. And so when we read the scripture, we need to position ourselves with the writers. We need to get where they were and sit where they sat and stand where they stood so that we can see God through the lens that they wrote about him. When I switch seats and start reading the words of the Bible from the perspective it was written, then I begin to develop a different hermeneutic and get a different interpretation of the scripture. What does that mean when reading the scripture? It means that suddenly I have to interpret it through a different lens and sit with it from a different vantage point. And when I dare to switch seats, I'm giving up how I've been preconditioned 
so that I can approach the text. So, so let me stop talking theory and give you some application with today's text. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6 and 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, you better believe that that scripture was left in the slave Bible because that scripture seems to give support to the institution of slavery itself. It says to the slave, be obedient and don't resist the authority of your master. To obey your master just like you would obey Christ. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, the late theologian and former professor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman, tells the story of having been raised by his grandmother, who was a former slave. As a young boy, Thurman would read the Bible to his grandmother, but she would never let him read the writings from the Apostle Paul. One day, Thurman asked his grandmother, why did, did she not want him to read any of Paul's writings? And she said to him, during the days of slavery, the master's white minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul, and at least three or four times a year he used that text, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. She says, and I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Now, the reality is that she's not the only one who has problems with Paul. A lot of us right now have mixed feelings about Paul because of this passage and, and other writings where he not only has something to say about keeping slaves in place, but, but keeping women in place too. Because remember, this is the same Paul who, who writes in 1 Corinthians 14 and 34, let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak. So what do you do with Paul, who we love for his treatment of the doctrine of salvation, but his apparent mistreatment of slaves and women? Here's what you do. You sit with the text from the vantage point it was written. You put the right backdrop behind it. And, and when you do that, you begin to see a fuller picture of what Paul teaches on the subject. What do you mean, preacher? Three things. First, context matters. When we read verses like Ephesians 6 and 5, we hear the common English translation slave in light of our own historical context. We think about American slavery and its horrors of rape and beatings and disfiguring and mortally wounding those who try to escape. That is not the slavery that was practiced in the Greco-Roman world. To be clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. But there is a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness of American slavery and what Paul is addressing in first century Ephesian churches. Secondly, and write this down, biblical instruction isn't necessarily biblical approval. When we have biblical instruction on how to do certain things, it does not necessarily give us biblical approval on continuing to do those things. An ethical exhortation in an epistle then may not tell you everything you need to know about God's will and God's character. In fact, it will probably give you more of a picture of day-to-day -day life as a Christian in a certain context than the Bible's overall ideal with respect to institutional and structural evil. 
When it comes to the subject of slavery, Paul is providing instruction in a certain context, not approval of the system itself. How, how do you know that it's not biblical approval? Because first of all, remember that the Bible is a story of liberation. It is the dealings of God walking with his people through captivity and oppression. The whole of the Bible itself tells the story of how God frees Israel and makes of them his holy people. But secondly, remember that Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, these words. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Right there, listen, Paul lists enslavers, those who practice slavery among the ungodly and the unholy. Slave traders, slave drivers, slave owners are listed with liars, fornicators, and murderers. Which means then that if owning slaves is ungodly, then the slave institution itself must not be of God. So if Paul believes that owning slaves is unholy and not of God, and that the institution of slavery is not of God, why would he command slaves to go along with it and obey their masters rather than rebel against them. Why? Because Paul's mission is greater than institutional change, but his mission is about individual change. Remember, this same Paul writes in Galatians 3 and 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The book of Philemon is a letter dedicated to the issue of a runaway slave. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon on behalf of this slave named Onesimus and, and says to him, to Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus back, but no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. In other words, Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and erects in its place a brother-brother relationship in which the former slave is, is treated with dignity, respect, and love. Thus, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, Paul is working to abolish the assumptions and the prejudices that make slavery possible. In other words, I want you to change your heart about the system and the situation. I, I want you to see the dignity in the person. I want you to treat this person who is serving you with a different understanding of who they are, of their status, as one created in the image of God and after his likeness. So when Paul writes, slaves obey your masters, it is not because he believes in the institution itself, but rather because he is saying to the people who are under Roman oppression, don't rebel and get yourself killed. If we're going to change this thing, it's going to happen by changing hearts and changing minds and by confronting the contradictions between belief and behavior, which is why in the very next verse, Paul goes from talking to the slave to talking to the master, saying, masters, 
do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, Paul says, stop mistreating slaves, stop mishandling slaves, stop being harsh and violent in your behavior with slaves, which means that what Paul is doing is really planting the seeds for a heart revolution and a spirit transformation in the midst of a culture that accepted and practiced slavery. Now, I know that's a long road to liberation. That's a long road to freedom. And I know that some of you are asking, why didn't Paul just come out and, and say, fight the power? Why wasn't he more pro-abolitionist in his language? Here's why. Because Paul was not just seeking a social revolution. He was seeking a revolution of the soul of mankind. So I'm going to give you this, and, and I'll have to quit for today. If we're going to hear and interpret Scripture correctly, then it must be approached with an open heart, where you're willing to hear it from a different vantage point. It must also be read with a clear lens. This means to wipe away any of my personal or cultural or experiential biases that would shade my view and my vision of the text. My 21st century pre-assumptions and preconditions and backdrops must be removed in order to really understand what the writer is saying. It must be handled with the right spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14 says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if I'm going to not only hear and interpret it correctly, but if I'm going to apply it to my life correctly, then I must first be born of the Spirit of God. That is to say, Lord, baptize me in your spirit so that I can hear your word, so that I will see what you are saying, so that I will understand it, and it will reflect your truth, not mine. Finally. It must be lived with pure intentions to make the gospel of Jesus Christ real and known. This means that, that when I approach the reading of the Holy Scriptures, that as I leave that encounter, my goal and my aim is to live for Christ. My purpose is to do what he in fact has taught and the principles that have been revealed in his word. I don't read the Bible to make it support my lifestyle, to make it support my actions and my desires. Rather, I read it to understand what God's character, what his will, and what his ways are. And having done so, I then live out his purpose. In order to do that, we must all pray the prayer. Speak to my heart. Speak to my heart. Give me your holy word. If I hear from you, then I'll know what to do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, and give you his peace. This weekend, we celebrate the birth of our nation. It's real easy in moments like this to sometimes shift priorities. Even as Christians, we sometimes put our politics before our faith. We put our 
parties before our religion. And yet none of these things can save us. Not the power of our politics, the power of our party, none of these things matter in terms of our eternal life. But there is the power of one, one who died on Calvary's cross, one who came that we might have life and that more abundantly. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want to invite you to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Don't worry about the preconditions, the things that you've heard and the things that have kept you from coming to Jesus before now. In the quietness of your heart, in the solitude of your mind, I want you to make a choice. Make a decision right now. And once you make that decision, you will be a new creature in Christ. Jesus is still the Savior of the world, and he wants to save you. Pray this prayer with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you now. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. And I believe you rose again from the dead. And right now, I accept you as Lord and Savior of my life. Rule and reign in my heart forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to call the number that's on your screen right now. There's someone there who will pick up and, and receive your call and pray with you and speak with you about next steps that you might live out your faith with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Call now. We're waiting to hear from you. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us for this worship experience. We thank you for always allowing us to come into your homes and be a part of your Sunday morning worship experience. Listen, before we leave you, we want to thank our Vacation Bible School staff for a wonderful month-long experience of Christian education. You have done an outstanding job, Sister Butler, and to all of your staff for making sure that all of our population for our, of our church were served this month of June. Thank you for a job well done. We also want to remind you that virtual community groups are coming up. This is an opportunity for you to join a new group, uh, an affinity group, something that you have a joint interest in. Look on the K Chapel app for all of the groups that are available and for the meeting times. We want you to join a group and connect. Make sure that you're connecting with all of the opportunities that are available for our congregation to stay united and connected while we are separated and scattered during this pandemic season. Parents, we want to remind you that each and every Thursday, you can go to the K-Chapel app and have access to the weekly children's church that's been updated each and every Thursday. Make sure that your child continues to grow in the word of God, that they will know who the Lord is, what the Lord wants for them, and how the Lord expects to bless them richly. Each and every Thursday, Children's Church continues to happen. Also, lastly, Sunday School continues to meet each and every Sunday morning, beginning at 8.30 a.m. Go to the app and see when your class time is meeting. And now may the grace of God and the sweet communion of His Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with each of you, now, henceforth, and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Symbols matter. And that our state adopted symbols should not cause division and represent disruption or remind us and the world of who we were, but rather of who we are and what we are becoming. Do you have the conscience? A conscience so stirred by the evils of racism that you won't know parts of it representing our state or being associated with our stance. Do you have the conscience? A conscience that is not conflicted so much by the politics of state of taking the flag down, but is troubled much more by the hurt that it causes by continuing to let it fly. Do you have the conscience? stands for righteousness the flag stands for racism it must come down the cross represents victory the flag represents violence it must come down the cross represents hope the flag represents hate it must come down the cross stands for liberty the flag stands for slavery it must come down and when it comes down finally Mississippi will position herself to move into a reality of herself and her potential. When it comes down, we will be able to see the dawning of a new state ready to leave the ghost of our past and lean into the spirit of light and liberty for all. When it comes down, we will send a clear message to the nation and the world that we are not waiting for the old South to rise again, but that we are committed to raising a new South led by a new generation of Mississippians ready to engage and to include and support the flourishing of all people. So Mississippi legislator, bring it down. Mr. Governor, bring it down. Mississippi, bring it down. And bring it down right now.